The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, we have the privilege now to go to God's Word. For those of you who haven't been with us on a regular basis, we went through the whole book of Acts that's in your New Testament there, 28 chapters in your English Bible that started basically a history of how the Church of Jesus Christ started, began, a whole lot of other important details beginning with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, culminating the book of Acts did with the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry. So time from from about 30 A.D. till about 60 A.D. And we went over that. Took us about a year and a half to go through that, a year and four months. Uh, 70-some-odd sermons. 77, I think. And it was a glorious time. We learned a lot. We learned together. There's a lot of practical stuff in God's living word in the book of Acts. And for the last three months or so, I've had folks come up and ask me, so what are you going to preach on next, Pastor Cliff? And it's a legitimate question. Many asked me that, and I, I kept going back and forth. I actually didn't know. I kept praying, boy, I'd like to preach on this book and this book and this book. All the books I was thinking of I wanted to preach on were in the Bible, so that was good. So I narrowed it down to about 66, 65. Um, so that was hard. Praying through the night, I'd ask people you know, to pray for me, and then I also asked people for, you know, well, what do you think? What would you like me to preach from and all i got suggestions i think from all 25 other books in the new testament so uh, we'll get to those as we can but one thing that was also impressed upon my heart is sam prayed earlier that it's tumultuous in our world politically among other things and that's true and there are pressing issues of the day that are in the headlines are being foisted upon you if you watch news at all read news there are themes uh that the news outlets are telling us that are important that we need to be paying attention that not only do we need to be paying attention to those issues they even tell us what we should think about it they tell us what our opinion should be and so i thought it'd be good to talk about some of these pressing issues most of which are controversial and actually subject it to the test of the word of god what does the bible say about this issue which we've done before what the bible says about all these issues we've done that typically during the summer but now's a good time to just look at a few of those and there are several subjects to choose from For example, what does the Bible say about immigration? Does the Bible even say anything about immigration? Well, if you're not a Christian, you'd probably say, no, the Bible has nothing to do with the current immigration issue. If you're a Bible-believing Christian and believe in the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, then you should believe the Bible has something to say about immigration, not only something, but something definitive, clearly and authoritatively to say about immigration. Absolutely. So I was thinking that that'd be a good issue to talk about from the Bible and then a couple of other pressing ones. So and just praying and seeing how God might lead. So here's where I landed. So if you look at the title of the sermon today, it's called what the Bible says about Israel. Part one, which promises you there's probably a part two, maybe a part six. I don't know yet. I don't even know what I'm preaching on next week. I don't even know how far I'm going to get through today. But I, I believe the issue of Israel The topic of Israel is one of those pressing, controversial issues of the day that, for the most part, is distorted by the world. It's literally turned on its head in terms of truth about Israel. And surprisingly, especially as of late, as I've interacted with Christians, bona fide, legitimate, Bible-believing Christians, there's a lot of ignorance regarding Israel. And it's a good wake-up call for me. I'm like, whoa, okay, I, I just can't always assume that Christians know this stuff. 
to the degree that they should. Boy, we, we got to go back. This is kind of basic. Israel. We need to know this as Christians. So that's what I want to do. I want to answer this question. What does the Bible say about Israel? Part one today. We'll just kick it off. Lay a solid foundation. We're going ground zero. I'm assuming nothing. That's why we're starting at the very beginning. I'm, it's like I'm talking to somebody who's never read the Bible in their life. Here's what I would say if I could start from the beginning and I only had 40 minutes to talk about Israel. Here's at least where I would start. So that's what I want to do with you today. It has been in the news. Did you know that the, the topic of Israel has been in the news every day for the last year, every day, a newspaper? A major newspaper every single day. Did you know that Israel has been in the news every single day since, since I've been alive? In a major newspaper? It has. That is not an exaggeration. Did you know that Israel's been in the news just about every day since World War I? Really? So I can't think of a more pressing topic or issue that we need to be aware of, not be ignorant about, not ignore... But most importantly, know what the Bible has to say about it. Does the Bible say anything about Israel? So my question for you really today, I hope that we can answer, is what, what do you think of Israel? That would be an interesting survey if I did that one around and got you privately. Asked, well, what do you, tell me what you think about Israel. I might get all kinds of various answers, some that totally disagree with one another. What do you think about Israel? Then the follow-up question, what do you think about Palestine? That's even more complicated, convoluted, controversial. A lot of ignorance on that. What do you, who's, whose land is it anyway? The land. That's the title of a book. Whose land is it anyway? Written in the 70s, I think. And it was about the conflict between the so-called Palestinians and the, the Jews. Whose land is it anyway? It's a, a good book. So those are... Pressing issues, we need to answer that question. What do you think about Israel? After all, if you're a Christian, the, the entire Old Testament is about Israel. That's what the book is about. That's what the Bible's about. Uh, the whole New Testament is, happens within the context of Israel, right? Jesus was born in Israel. He ministered in Israel. He grew up and was raised in Israel. He never went outside of Israel for the most part. His apostles were trained in Israel, began the church in Israel, ministered in Israel, and they sprinkled across, but then it concludes in Revelation, according to the Bible, everything climaxes, culminates eventually in Israel. So, absolutely significant. So let's go ahead and look at what the Bible has to say about Israel, part one. But before we do, if you have been paying attention at all in the news, and by the way, it does matter where you get your news, especially today. We, this country is so polarized. That where you tune in, here's a typical millennial I heard like three days ago, being totally honest, whatever a millennial is, I guess like a young person in like the 20s or something, I'm trying to figure that out. Where do you get your news? I just get it on my newsfeed on my phone. Well, what, what organization? I, does, I, I don't know. It's just on my phone. Wow, that's kind of dangerous. You've got to consider the source. What are they spewing out? Is it truth or not? And Christians do that. Oh, it's on TV. It must be true. But not, not anymore. You've got to consider the source. Jesus talked about that way back in Matthew. Consider the source. 
So you have to be discerning even in terms of the source of where you're getting your information about Israel. So if you've been paying attention at all on any news source, here are some recent highlights. Did you know that last week, at the beginning of last week, Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence spoke in Jerusalem at the Knesset, the Israeli parliament? I think that's the first time in history that a United States vice president has ever had that forum to speak. And you could have watched it live. You could have streamed it. It was amazing. It was historic. Mike Pence claims to be a Christian. Everything I can see and read about him, he, he is a Christian. And he spoke to the Israeli parliament, and apparently there's a contingent in the Israeli parliament. They're in Israel, where Benjamin Netanyahu is the prime minister, an Orthodox Jew. But within these members of the Israeli parliament, there's a contingent of Arabs who are actually members of the Israeli parliament. Not only are they Arabs, but they hate the Jews. And they're a part of that government structure, which is crazy. I don't know how that works, but I guess we have senators and House of Representatives who hate America. Um, so I guess it's not too surprising. So anyway, Mike Pence gets up and he begins his talk. And these this contingent of uh, Arabs who don't like the Jews got up and started. They had signs and they were protesting in the middle of his talk. And then they were ushered out and it was a big controversy, whatever. And then Mike Pence continued to give his speech. And he did. And Mike Pence talked about uh, Old Testament history and Abram. He did a, a wonderful job regarding being true to the text of the Bible. And then he said this incredibly controversial thing that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And people went ballistic. Not only the Arabs who hate the Jews, but people in America and many, most probably of the news networks are, were appalled. How dare Mike Pence say that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel? So that was on the news this week. And then uh, Newsweek magazine had an article basically taking Mike Pence to task. How dare he say that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel? How, and he got that from President Trump. How dare, how arrogant for President Trump to say that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Anyway, and so you just had to listen to that all week long, which is nothing new because that's been going on for a month now since President Trump said that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and then the whole world you know, got upset at that statement for some reason. And we need to know why this controversy. Why are so many people seems like the, the dominant majority of the world is opposed to this crazy notion that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. But if, you're, if you know the Bible and you're Bible-believing Christian, you, definitely, you, have a different, you should have a different perspective. That's why we need to look at what Scripture says. By the way, this issue, it's talked about in the news and the politicians and everybody's got an opinion. And so there are many who are saying this idea of Israel and Jerusalem is a political issue. And it needs to be uh, in the forum and the domain only of politics and political discussion. And it's not a biblical issue. It's not a theological issue. And so we're not allowed to have an opinion on it. Well, that's wrong. Uh, who Israel is, the nature of Israel, the authority of Israel, it's primarily a biblical issue. It's not a political issue. It's a biblical issue. God is the authority on Israel. And the authority that God has given us regarding Israel and its truth is right here in the Bible. This is the authoritative word on Israel. It's beginning, it's inception, God's plan, it's history, the duration of it, where it's at today, the future of Israel, it's all right here. There are no questions. If you just know the Bible. And it's a biblical issue, it's not a political issue. There are issues that are legitimately political issues. Like, how much money should we allocate to the military? Because, why is that a political? Because it's actually in the Constitution. One of the few things that's in the Constitution. Your opinion, my opinion, of Israel is not in the Constitution. It's in the Bible. And this also came up with marriage, gay marriage. How do we define marriage? And then there were the, 
the world is telling, oh, you Christians, you, you stay out of this discussion. This is a political issue. You have no opinion. You have no right. You can't stand up at the pulpit and give your opinion, your myopic, narrow-minded, hateful, bigoted opinion about what you think traditional marriage should be. This is a political issue. Shut your mouth. Stay out of it. That's wrong. Marriage, its definition, that is not a political issue. It's a biblical issue. Same thing. God created marriage. states very clearly in the Bible how it began, the parameters of marriage, the purpose of marriage, the duration of marriage, the history of marriage, consequences for violating marriage, and the culmination of the institution of marriage. It's all in the Bible. So that's a political issue. That's not a that's a biblical issue, not a political issue. So we can speak up on issues that are clearly intersect with the Bible. So the definition of marriage is one of those. Sanctity of life is clearly one of those. What we should think about the nation of Israel is one of those. What we should view, our view should be about Jerusalem is one of those. These are from the Bible. So we stand on solid ground in terms of God's perspective on this matter. This is not my personal opinion, and I ask you to search the Scriptures with me to see if I'm being true to what Scripture has to say. Very important. But so President Trump said that controversial statement a month ago that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, and one of his goals is to bring peace between the Jews and the Palestinians in Israel. Now, when I heard him say that for the first time, I thought, that's ridiculous. Because, or that's naive. Because you're not going to do it. And before President Trump, Obama said the same thing for eight years. One of his goals was to bring peace between the Jews and the Palestinians in Israel. And the first time I heard him say that, that's ridiculous. That is naive. That is stupid. That ain't going to happen. And before Obama, there was President Bush for eight years saying that he was going to bring peace between the Palestinians and the Jews that are in Israel. First time I heard that, that's ridiculous. That ain't going to happen. Ain't going to happen. Why? Because it's contrary to the Bible, contrary to history, contrary to common sense. And before Bush was Clinton, and Clinton said he was going to bring peace between the Palestinians and the Jews in Israel. And as a matter of fact, he had a couple of meetings with the head of the Palestinians and the prime minister of Israel, Rabin. And Yasser Arafat. And they actually went to a meeting. They shook hands. They took pictures. 1993. Yasser, oh, I've brought peace. No, you haven't. It's a lie. It's a temporary period of nonviolence as people behind the scenes are reloading their armaments. And time has proven since 1993 that's true. So he didn't bring peace either. And before Clinton, there was... The senior President Bush said the same thing. Yeah, one of his goals was to bring peace between the Palestinians and the Jews. That didn't happen. And before him, President Carter said the same thing. President Ford said the same thing. Ronald Reagan said the same thing and then realized, oh, this probably isn't going to happen. And it goes all the way. You can go all the way back to World War I and World War II where the British, who had great influence in that part of the world, were saying the same thing naively. We can bring peace between... They weren't called the Palestinians at the time. They were called the Arabs, the Arabs and the Jews in Israel, World War I, World War II. So that's just 100 years of history. And the Bible has something to say to inform this whole discussion. So let's go ahead and see what the Bible has to say about Israel. Uh, what do you think about Israel? What do you think about Palestine? Who's, whose land is it? So the big controversy today is does the land of Israel, including the capital city of Jerusalem, does it belong to the Palestinians or does it belong to the Jews in Israel? That's the big controversy in case you're not aware of it. And people are passionate 
and even killing each other over answering that question. But that's actually a wrong question. Does the land belong to the Jews, including Jerusalem, or does it belong to the Arabs who are living there? Because they are not Palestinians. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So that just convolutes everything. Did you know 150 years ago a Palestinian was a Jew living in Israel? And then through successful historical revisionism and brainwashing, that's changed and been flipped on its ear. And we'll see that as we go through our study. But let's just start from the very beginning. Uh, what does God have to say about this? And Oh, before I get to point number one, just two more points. Uh, if we could have that first slide up there. So here's Yasser Arafat. He plays into this. Maybe familiar to, maybe not. So Yasser Arafat actually is the one that most people credit for creating the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which now supposedly is like a nation, a quasi-nation in the land of Israel. They have a portion of the land of Israel. And so he spearheaded creating this nation that became formally the Palestinian nation in Israel today. And he called it the Palestinian Liberation Organization. So most people, when they say he died uh, within the last 10 years or so, and he lived in Israel at the end of his life, in the land of Israel. And if you were to ask people, what, what nationality or what is, what is he? People would say, well, he's a Palestinian. Because that's what he claimed. He said, I am Palestinian. This is our land, the land of Israel. And he tried to create a nation called, the, called Palestine. Well, the problem, he's not Palestinian, whatever that means. Here's a little bit about Yasser Arafat, just so you know, because this will set the context. Yasser Arafat, he was uh, born in Cairo, Egypt, and raised there. So he wasn't born in Israel. He's not a Jew, he's an Arab. And by faith, he's a Muslim. And by the time he was 11, he was a committed terrorist with the goal and mission to destroy Israel as a nation and remove it from the earth. And he was true to that his whole life. So he's not a Palestinian, because that has meaning. We're going to look at that. What was he then? Well, he was uh, an Arab Muslim Egyptian. And he was taught and born and raised to hate the Jews by his parents and his uncle and his mufti. So that's who Yasser Arafat is. So that's part of the confusion. He's not Palestinian. It doesn't matter what he says. And so he wasn't born in Israel. He was born in Egypt. And then he was uh, chased all over different countries and uh, got himself in trouble as a young terrorist and ended up in the safe haven of many Arab countries uh, for sanctuary, being protected while he's hating the Jews and trying to kill Israel. And then eventually ends up, lands in the, ends up in the land of Israel and successfully gains a foothold and a following and with the news organizations. And voila, he has created a nation called Palestine, which he is, was the leader of for years. Um, so you need to know who he is in that background because that plays into this. So, And by the way, he was, he was horrible. Like I said, at age 11, he was already a committed terrorist and changed his name to Yasser, uh, which has to do with resistance. And the resistance was pointed towards the Jews. Age 14, he was literally a terrorist doing gun running for Arab guerrillas in the Gaza Strip with the, in 1943 to 1948 with the goal of killing Jews that lived in Israel. Uh, 1952, he joined the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a violent Islamic terrorist group founded in Egypt in 1928, committed to eliminating the Jews, Christians, and the Western culture. 1956, started his own contracting company in Kuwait and began recruiting cadets for Al 
Fatah, which means conquest by jihad, a formal terrorist organization. 1963, the Arab League establishes the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was the main air vehicle for terrorism with the goal of destroying Israel by attacking the civilian population. 1969, he takes over the leadership of the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, establishing headquarters in Jordan. September 6, 1970, Arafat, Arafat's popular front, he, he called it hijacked TWA airline, KLM airlines, in protest of peace talks that were going on with Israel. 1971, PLO forcefully expelled from Jordan and then moved to Lebanon. September 5, 1972, during the 1972 Olympics in Germany, Arafat's group... The Black September Organization infiltrated Olympic Village in the Olympics in Munich and slaughtered 11 members of the Israeli athletic team. So the mastermind behind that was this beast. 1974, he addressed the United Nations. On November 22 of 1974, the United Nations grants the PLO observer status. In other words, they're going to let him come in and become one of the nations of the United Nations. It's a terrorist organization. 1987, Arafat declares the first intifada, or uprising against the Jews, and a wave of terrorism uh, overcomes Israel. In 1988, he announces the Declaration of Independence and the establishment of the independent Palestinian state. That's how he created a nation. He just said, we are a state, de facto, and it happened. 1989, uh, he was chosen president of the state of Palestine. 1993, Arafat signs. So uh, Clinton got... Him and Prime Minister uh, Rabin, Yitzhak Rabin together, and they had this very shallow, phony peace accord, the Oslo Accords, and they signed papers, they shook hands, and literally uh, he agreed to peace at the table, and behind his back, speaking in his language, the Arabic language to the Muslims, he was saying, my goal is to destroy Israel. Just after shaking hands, said, oh yeah, we'll be at peace. He did that routinely for two decades. Because Clinton didn't know Arabic, neither do most Americans. 1994, Palestinian Arabs begin waves of homicide bombings against Israel. 1994, Arafat given the... Get this. So a year later, in 1994, uh, the one who spearheaded the slaughter of 11 Israeli Olympics and who keeps saying that his goal is to destroy Israel off the face of the earth, in 1994, Arafat was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Anyway, I could list on and on until he died with his ongoing antics of terror against Jews and Americans. Anyway, very important background. Let's go ahead and see. Well, what is the Bible? Oh, one more picture. Sorry. And if this is recent, if you're watching the news this week, very lovely woman here. Um, this was controversial because that lady there became... Uh, a smashing success as a L'Oreal cosmetic spokesperson in uh, Europe, particularly in France. And it said uh, L'Oreal made history last week. This was just within the last 10 days. When it became the first major cosmetics firm to feature a Muslim woman wearing a head covering in a mainstream international campaign for hair products, the signing of Amina Khan, that's her name, a British blogger on beauty as the newest face of L'Oreal Paris generated a lot of positive publicity for the French firm, with CNN lauding the company for breaking barriers and, quote, becoming more diverse, end quote, in an article that also flattered Khan for empowering women. That's CNN's endorsement of her. Well, other people weren't 
exactly thrilled because they knew that she had a history of being anti-Semitic and so vocal about it that she had written in 19 uh, or a few years before in 2014, 2015 on her blog of, of her disdain for Israel and called them an illegitimate nation. They were baby killers or child killers, and basically they don't deserve to exist, the nation of Israel. So uh, behind the facade of the beautiful face, is a, a heart that's very anti-Semitic in terms of her view of the nation of Israel. So uh, just bring that up to say this is a current issue. It's real. It's all over. It's in the news. It's everywhere. And you, you need to have an opinion about it because if you don't, CNN will tell you what to think. And we need to ask, well, is that consistent with the Bible? So let's go ahead and let's just answer the question. What does God have to say about the nation of Israel and also the nation of Palestine as well? So we're going to start with point number one. Uh, from Adam to Noah... There was only one nation. God created Adam and Eve. By the way, Adam and Eve were real people. I believe that. That's the beauty of the Bible. You know, the Bible can tell you how everything began. It tells you how things began. Well, how did the church begin? Well, the Bible tells us. How did the world begin? Well, the Bible tells us. How did the human race begin? Well, the Bible tells us. How did the universe begin? Well, the Bible tells us. When did marriage begin? Well, the Bible tells us. When did sin begin? The Bible tells us. How did death begin? The Bible tells us. It answers all those important questions. When did God begin? Well, the Bible tells us. He didn't. Whereas every alternative worldview can't answer any of those questions. We believe in evolution. We believe in evolution. We believe in evolution. Okay, when did that begin? Uh, I don't know. Well, how did it begin? Well, uh, there was nothing times nothing exploded and became everything. Really? Oh, that's science? That's not even good math. Wait, really? Zero times zero equals everything? No, no, that's not good. That's not what I learned in fourth grade. But the Bible answers those questions very specifically. Adam, God created uh, Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, and it goes into great detail, the names of their children, the purpose of marriage, the purpose God gave them from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, their first activities, uh, the first murder that took place, God's curse on that, the next child that was born. Amazing. And there was one nation. So uh, from about 4,000 B.C., that's the chronology we have in the Bible. Well, how, how old is the earth? There, it is very common for well-known evangelicals today to say that we don't know how old uh, the earth is. The Bible doesn't care. God doesn't care. He doesn't tell us, so we shouldn't even worry about it. Uh, well, no, actually, the Bible does tell us very clearly. He started Genesis chapter 5, and, boy, he lists years and dates the fathers died and how old the son was when or dad was when the son was born and how long he lived. No, that's pretty clear. Genesis 5, Genesis 10, Genesis 11, in combination with other books in the Old Testament, Luke chapter 3, Matthew chapter 1. No, it's, it's clear. So we know about how old uh, the earth is according to God. And so just a rough estimate is, so from the very beginning, 4,000 B.C., until uh, the time of Noah, roughly about 2,500 B.C., there was only one nation. You don't have any details from the Bible talking about different nations around the earth. So go ahead and open your Bible. And we'll just look at a couple of highlights as we go through. Starting at Genesis chapter 5. Although God did say when they were created, Adam and Eve, uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That was God's desire. Fill the earth, populate the whole earth, and mediate over the earth on my behalf. Then Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel. Then there was the first murder, curse on Cain. And then God 
blessed Eve with another child to supplant Abel. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the Toledoth of the book of generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man, humanity, in the day when they were created, the day that they were created. They didn't evolve in the day that they were created, day six. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, named Seth. Very important. So Seth is a very, oh, and an important detail as well is verse four. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years. And get this little footnote. And he had other sons and daughters, okay? So Adam lived to be 930 years old, and Adam and Eve were populating the earth, having all kinds of children. That's how the earth got populated. That's where people came from. They didn't just have three kids. Very important. And God introduces Seth because Seth is a very important descendant of Adam because it would be through the loins of Seth. So Adam and Eve, maybe they had hundreds of kids, but it was Seth was the elect one, the select one through which God would bring a savior through the loins of Seth. From Seth to Noah, and then through one of Noah's sons, Shem. Shemite is where we get the word Semite, Jewish. The Semitic people come from Shem, who come from Seth. And it was the promise through Seth, through Shem, by which the Messiah would come and be the Savior of the world. That's why in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, you've got the genealogy of Jesus going through Shem and Seth. So this has to do with the Messiah and God's plan. God's going to save the world through this man named Seth and his line culminate in Jesus Christ. But point being, for these first few thousand years, there's only one nation. It doesn't even have a name. It's not called Israel. It's not called anything. It's just the people on earth. Number two, after the flood, Noah's sons gave birth to the nations. So go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 10 now. So you don't have, so for the first 2,000 years of human history, there are no nations. It's just people on the earth. God told them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Then in chapter 10, We just met Noah, and then he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then it lists in chapter 10 the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So you have the descendants of Japheth in verse 2. You have the descendants of Ham in verse 6. And you have the descendants of Shem in verse 21. From those three men came the nations of the earth. So... A Bible answers the question, where did all these nations come from? We got Czechoslovakia, we got China, we got Japan, we got India, we got Korea, we got America, we got the origins. Where did they all come from? This is where they began. Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11. Did you know that there is no ancient story that we know of, no Babylonian epic, no Egyptian epic, no ancient history uh, that parallels Genesis chapter 2 and 11 in the Bible? In other words, no other tradition tells us how the nations developed and began and where they came from. Evolution doesn't explain it. This is unique to the Bible, chapter 10 and 11. In terms of all human history. It's totally accurate if you read it. And it goes into great detail. Uh, if you read and study Genesis chapter 10, one of my, my Hebrew professors spent like 15 years on his PhD dissertation that I think he finally finished. It was on Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations. 
the, the data is overwhelming. That you can go through this chapter and you can find out, oh, I, we know where uh, it, England or Britain came from. They're, they're in here. We know where the German people came from. We, we know where Egypt came from. The Egyptians, it's all in here. We know where the people of Russia came from, their origin. It's all in here. It's amazing. The accuracy of it. Eber. There's a guy named Eber here. You know what that means? Hebrew. That's where the word Hebrew comes from. Verse 24. So one people. Then after the flood, uh, Noah's three sons gave birth to the nations. About 2400 B.C. Then number three. Flip over to chapter 11. At the Tower of Babel, nations divided by language. So here's the first division. So verse 1 of chapter 11, now the earth, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. We don't know what the language was. We do know from a lot of archaeology going back into antiquity that the common consonantal dominant language was of Semitic slash Hebrew origin. So the prototypical ancient, most ancient of languages was some form of Hebrew, legitimate scholars tell us, which would make sense. Because those were the people who occupied that part of the world. But there was one language. Now there's thousands of people on planet Earth. And then Genesis chapter 11, uh, there was verse 2, it came about as they, the people on the Earth journeyed east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. They settled there. They didn't spread out. God said, fill the earth. And they said, no, we won't. Verse 3, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And so they built this huge, massive tower up to heaven. And instead of spreading out, filling the earth... They totally disobeyed God and said, no, we're going to stay right here. We're going to be isolated. We're not going to spread out. We're not going to obey the creator. And we're going to try to reach heaven with the works of our own hands. And God cursed them, punished them as a result. The Lord, verse 5, came down to see the city, the tower which they had built. Verse 6, the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They all have the same language, and this is what they will begin to do. Nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. And God said, the Trinity said, come verse 7, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the whole face of the earth and they stopped building the city. Verse 9, therefore its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. That was punishment from God. So why is it when I go to Honduras and I'm trying to preach to these guys and they don't understand me in my English tongue? It's a curse from Genesis chapter 11. It is very frustrating. I would prefer to preach in English and they hear me in English, but they can't. I need a translator. That's a problem. It's a curse of God. When we get to heaven, apparently everybody's speaking the same language. That means we either know all the languages of the world, which would be amazing, or there's just one heavenly language. And God will bypass, reverse the curse of Genesis 11. But we've got all kinds of languages around the world today, and this is the answer. When did languages get diversified? Well, the Bible is very clear on that. It happened at the Tower of Babel. Most people, they laugh in our face and say, ah, that's ridiculous. Really? You got something better? Tell me how your zero times zero equals everything produces all the languages of the world. They can't. Number three, so at Babel, nations were divided by language. So that's the origin of nations. And so this is where God is going to begin to be very selective about nations, their character, the plan for them, and the future, and where Israel comes into play in terms of its origin. And that would be number four. In 2000 B.C., God promised to make Abram, not Abraham, but Abram a nation. Abram at the time, 75-year-old pagan idol worshiper. He is not saved. And God calls him out of Babylon, says, you know, selected him. He wasn't even saved. 
And God in his grace elects this man who didn't deserve it. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to do amazing things through you. And here's what it was. It was a threefold promise. There was more, but basically, so look at Genesis chapter 12. This, this is critical. If there was probably a definitive text in the entire Bible that informs the issue of who Israel is, this is it in Genesis 12. Everything else pretty much expands and explains Genesis 12 of God's promise to Abram. The Lord God said to Abram, go forth from your own country. Here he is in Babylon. Leave, leave Babylon. Leave your relatives. Leave your father's house. Verse 2. Oh, go to the land that I will show you. He didn't even tell him what it was yet. Just go to the land I will show you. Walk by faith. Trust me, I'm your creator. And Abraham says, wow, okay. Whoa, creator's talking to me. So he walks by faith. And then God's promise, verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. There it is. So this is the first uh, this is on the heels of the, the nations of chapter 10 and 11. And I will make you a great nation, a special nation, a unique nation, a distinct nation, a purposeful nation that will be a conduit to the rest of the world. God will make that nation. Israel be, was great not because they became great, earned their way to being great, or deserved to be great. God made them great. Despite themselves and their sin and their compromise, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. This is the nation of Israel. I'm Abraham. I'm going to turn you into the nation of Israel. I will make you great. I will bless you. I will bless Israel. I will bless the Israelites. I will bless the Jews. I will make your name great, Abram. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those. This is key. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you. I will curse. God has never revoked that promise. So that promise is over 4,000 years old. I still believe this is true today. You get on the wrong side of Israel, you are in trouble. You're under the curse of God. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, Abram, in your nation, from the loins of your nation, the Israelites, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You know what that means? Through Israel, through the loins of Israel... I, Almighty God, Creator, Judge, and Savior of the world, will bless not just physically, but primarily spiritually, the Gentiles of the world. The entire human race is going to be blessed through you. That is a promise of the coming Messiah. The book of Acts, the book of Galatians, quotes this passage and applies it to Jesus. It's amazing. 2000 B.C. Boy, if you're a Gentile this morning, if you're not Jewish and you've been saved, you are fulfillment of this prophecy. You can write your name in there. I have been blessed. Thank you, Abram. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. So that's when he was 75 years old. Uh, 12, 13 years later, Abraham actually got born again. He believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness at about age 85. Then he, had his, then he had the child of promise when he was 100 years old. His son, Isaac. And Isaac got married and gave birth to many sons, or Jacob and Esau. And, and then Jacob got married and he had many sons. But Jacob was the child of promise. And Jacob got saved when he was about 40 years old, when God literally wrestled with him in the form of an angel. God reiterated these promises to Isaac and to Jacob and to his offspring, saying, we are going to make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And what do you need to have a nation? Well, here's three things. You need land, or what I say, property. 
you can't have a nation without land. That's what they're fighting over for right now in between the Arabs and the Jews. What else do you need to have a nation? You need land or property. You need laws or what I call politics. You can't have a, a nation without laws. And so God fulfills this promise by bringing Moses, the lawgiver, and there are the 633 laws for the nation of Israel. He gives them the promised land. says, Joshua, take that land. Moses, here are your laws. Well, with Abram, there's just one guy. What do you need to have a nation? You need people, which I call laity or the people. And this is how God basically. So God makes this promise in Genesis 12. The rest of the Old Testament actually explains how God gave them the land laws and laity. So the book of Exodus, actually the end of the book of Genesis says that the family of Jacob went from like 14 to 76 people. And then that's in chapter 50 of Genesis. Then Exodus chapter 1 that 400-year period, Israel, Jacob went from 76 people to over, over 2 million people. There it is. God fulfilled his promise of people. And then he brings Moses, the lawgiver. So he fulfills uh, point B. They got people. They got laws. But they're in Egypt. They don't have the land. God, they need to get the land back. And so then you got the story of the Exodus, Exodus chapter 12 and following. And the book of Joshua, they enter the land fulfilling that promise. And God even gave the boundaries in Genesis 15 exactly what the, pro- the boundaries would be of the property. All the way from uh, Babylon, the Tigris, Euphrates, all the way down to the, the river of Egypt, which would be the Nile. That is all your land. It is yours forever. It is yours perpetually. It belongs to Israel. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It is a gift from God. You are stewards of it. It belongs to the Jews. And God said that is irrevocable. We're going to see that next week. It's an irrevocable promise. And Paul goes into great detail in Romans 9 through 11 on that great truth. So number five, the rest of the Old Testament shows how Abram became the nation of Israel. Islam wants to say that the child of promise from Abram is Ishmael. That is wrong. It's Isaac, clearly in the Bible. So that's part of the problem. And the confusion that people have. So that's just an overview of Israel. And then maybe another. I, I want to talk a little bit more about it. And then also I want to talk about what our view of Jerusalem should be. And how that plays into our Christian faith at a very basic level. So uh, with that let's go ahead and we're going to have communion now. So if our ushers could uh, get the elements ready. And I just want to remind us of from 1 Corinthians 11. The, the beautiful gift of communion from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a if you're a Christian, you believe in the gospel, you know, Jesus, he's your savior, then you're invited and welcome to participate in communion. In other words, you don't have to be a member of GBF to participate in communion. This is a gift that God gave to believers, and it's a tangible. Interaction. Because we're physical people, and that's also a gracious gift from God. And clearly, the Bible says that these are symbols of the the wine that comes around. It's, it's really the, the fruit of the vine, the drink of the vine from grapes. And it can be fermented or sometimes it's not fermented. So that's why we use grape juice in case you're wondering. You never had it before. Um, and why is it not red? Because the, the grapes weren't red uh, that we have. But it's of the fruit of the vine. And then the bread, literal bread that Jesus passed out. And he was using it symbolically and saying the bread represents Uh, Me, my life, I'm the bread from heaven. I give sustenance. I provide that for sinners, those who call upon God. 
Uh, I came as the bread of life to give you life that you might find sustenance and uh, growth and nurture and life in me. And part of that, to do that, it required a substitutionary death for our sin. So somebody had to die. God is not appeased unless there is death for sin. God's requirement for sin is death. The consequences of sin is death. And so Jesus came to die. Literally, he gave his life as a substitute for us. He died on our behalf. So because we're all sinners, we all deserve the sentence of death, physical death, eternal death, and spiritual death. And Jesus came down and absorbed all those penalties as the incarnate almighty God, sinless of the universe, died our death as our substitute. Absolutely amazing. And pacified God the Father who is holy. Somebody has to die. Jesus died. So justice was served. And if we believe that Jesus was our substitute, then God totally, he renders the verdict. You are not guilty. Even better is you are innocent, which is absolutely amazing. So think about, don't do this too long, but think about some sins you've committed. Stop thinking, because that can be depressing very quickly. Just a reminder, God, you, you have forgiven me of all those sins in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. This is time to celebrate. So that's, that was Jesus' intention with communion. It was a time of celebration and, and just being refocused. God, Father, thank you for forgiving me. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. And there's nothing mystical about it. It's real. It's subjective. It's experiential. It's delightful. But there's nothing mystical about it. And what I mean by that is there's, there's actually nothing uh, in the drink. Just by drinking this, you don't get sins forgiven. And, and the bread, Jesus is not in the bread, which some evangelical denominations try to tell us the catholic church and others say that jesus is somehow in the bread no he's not i got something better jesus is in you isn't that better i like that better i will be in you jesus said john 14 and we celebrate that wonderful truth so uh with that i'm just going to give you a minute we'll have the piano uh playing for just a minute as you just meditate in your own heart if you're a christian celebrating thanking god for forgiveness of sin and the glorious work of our blessed Savior. Then when we're done praying, we'll go ahead and take together. Let's pray. Well, we're going to close with a song. So if you could go ahead and stand. I'll just close this in prayer, and then we'll go ahead and close our worship with our final song together. And may God bless you this day and this week. Father, we thank you for this day to be with the saints, to be a part of the fellowship that you call the body of Christ. We thank you again for our local church, uh, the people that you have in your providence brought together to be a, a local body who have the privilege to, to worship you, to learn from you, to encourage one another, continue to help us grow, to be soft and tender, to be teachable, to be focused on you, help us with your Holy Spirit as we get entangled with sin so easily. Thank you most of all for our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus, in his sacrificial death on our behalf. We give you all the glory. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 0009.